church family, I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Mark chapter 15. Uh, For those of you that may be guests with us, we have been in a 35-week series through the Gospel of Mark. This is the final Sunday morning sermon uh, here in the Gospel of Mark, and we are picking up where we left off in verse 33, and we'll read down through verse 8 of chapter 16 here in just a moment. If you are unfamiliar with the Bible, or maybe you don't even own a Bible, there is one in the back of the pew in front of you. You can take that out, and you can take it home with you as our gift to you. If you don't understand how chapters and verses work in the Bible, just turn to page 853, and that's where we will be starting this morning. I invite you to stand once again with me as we honor the reading of God's word, starting in verse 33. Just for uh, clarity on where we are, Jesus has already been tried, beaten, and hung on a cross. And it is now the sixth hour which means it is noontime. Mark writes, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shekthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Passover, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was all who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked. For the body of Jesus, Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went and They went out and fled the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Let us pray together. 
Father, this morning, we are grateful to you for the gathered body of believers that is Nansman River Baptist Church and our guests who have joined us here on this Resurrection Sunday. We are thankful, Father, for the gospel of Jesus Christ that unifies us across every boundary that would seek to divide us. We thank you, God, that we are just one local expression of your church. And we recognize, Father, that around our world today, true churches are gathered proclaiming this same gospel. We thank you, God, of the ones that we know of, of Great Joy Bible Church in Kigali, Rwanda, who has already gathered this morning to worship you on the Lord's Day there in Rwanda. For Redemption Heights Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, that will gather this evening to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. For churches here in Hampton Roads, Christ Fellowship Church of Williamsburg, Pocosin Baptist Church, Fox Hill Road Baptist Church on the peninsula, Reformed Christian Fellowship just across the river from us, who are faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Jesus this morning. Father, we pray that both here in our local gathering and in all of those, Jesus would be exalted, the Lord would be worshiped, and the gospel would be believed by men and women, boys and girls, unto salvation. We thank you now as we come to your word for Jesus, who died and was raised in our place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a difference between knowing that something happened and knowing why something happened. This becomes real for parents when their child reaches about three years old. And that child begins to ask a million times over, why? They are no longer satisfied with simply knowing the facts that their parents have presented to them. Now they want to know why? Why do we have to go? Why do I have to go to bed? Why do I have to eat my green beans? Why do I have to do the million things that these children would ask? It is because the Lord has placed within all of us a desire to know why. Now, that doesn't mean that knowing what happened is unimportant because knowing what happened leads us to answer, asking the question and having it answered for us, why? I am not going to argue this morning the what of this text. I'm going to present it to you as fact because it is fact. And if you're here this morning, I imagine that you are at least somewhat willing to affirm the historical validity of the text that we have already stood and read. 19th century Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle once said, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is one of the best attested facts on record. There were so many witnesses to behold it that if we do in the least degree receive the credibility of men's testimonies, we cannot and we dare not doubt that Jesus rose from the dead. Knowing that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected is an important fact, historical fact, to know. But knowing why it happened 
knowing why he was crucified, knowing why he was buried, and knowing why God raised him from the dead is paradigm-shifting, universe-altering, and completely and utterly life-changing. The central truth that I want you to walk away from this morning from this text is that Jesus was crucified for our sins and resurrected for our justification before the Father. I'm going to seek to answer these two questions this morning. Why was the crucifixion necessary? And why was the resurrection necessary? And it is because Jesus died for our sins and was resurrected for our justification. Now, I recognize that justification is a big word. It is a Bible word, so I would like to provide a definition for you. Wayne Grudem defines justification as an instantaneous act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification is a legal term. Imagine, if you will, that God the Father is the judge and that we are the defendant. And what God declares in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is two things. Number one, that you are not guilty of your sins because Jesus became guilty of your sins for you. But more so, not only are you not guilty, but you are now righteous because Jesus gives to you that which you could never earn or deserve on your own, his righteousness. So let's begin with our first question. Why was the crucifixion of Jesus necessary? I'll seek this morning to clearly answer that question in four parts. The first, which we will see in verses 33 through 36 of Mark 15, is that Jesus was crucified to take our sin on himself as a sacrificial lamb. Go back to the beginning of this passage with me this morning. And when the sixth hour had come, again, that is noontime, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, meaning from noon to three, the brightest part of the day, the entire land went dark. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translates, or that is the language in which Jesus spoke, it was Aramaic. Mark translates that for his Roman audience, and then our English translators translate it for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Here, hanging on the cross, darkness fills the land, and something happens miraculous. Your sin my sin. The sins of the entire world are placed on the shoulders of Jesus who becomes in our place a sacrificial lamb. This takes place during the festival, the Jewish festival of unleavened bread. Jesus and his disciples had just celebrated Passover where as many as 100 or 200,000 Passover lambs would have been slain just a day before, two days before in Jerusalem, reminding the people of God's Passover in Exodus that the lamb took the place of their firstborn son and now the one and only son of God has become the sacrificial lamb, fulfilling the Passover, hanging on the cross and our sins are placed on him. 
His cry to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is the first line of Psalm 22, the Psalm of the Cross, where David, 900 years before Jesus, looks forward to the coming Messiah and his crucifixion in our place. Darkness and sin now on Jesus. So it's important to recognize that there is something spiritual going on, not just physical that is happening. Yes, physical torment and suffering that Jesus has been suffering since early that morning after his trial with Pilate, now to the middle of the day. But something far greater is now taking place. The sins of the world are being laid on Jesus. He is taking our sin in our place. The apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight writes about the reason for this. He says, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus took on our sin because we are entirely incapable of pleasing God on our own. The eternal righteous son of God became sin for you So when we look at this middle part of the day and darkness spread across the land and Jesus crying out to God and we ask why, the answer is simple. It is because Jesus willingly goes to the cross and experiences something he had never experienced before and that is sin. That your disobedience and mine before a holy and righteous God was laid on the Son of God who willingly took it because we are incapable of doing so. We are unable to save ourselves, but Jesus laid down his life as the sacrificial lamb for us, becoming sin in our place. Number two, Jesus was crucified to endure the punishment for our sin. In verse 37, Mark, as he does, if, if you are here on a regular on Sunday morning, you know Mark is fairly succinct of the four gospel authors. He is the shortest, the quickest to the point, and he simply says that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. One of the other gospel authors, there are four books of the Bible that tell us the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel of John tells us what Jesus cried with his last breath. It is finished, John writes, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This was the loud cry of Jesus. And so it begs the question, what was finished? (laughs) If this is the last words of our Lord bearing bearing our sin on the cross, what is it that Jesus cries out, it is finished? It was his work on Calvary, not only taking our sin on himself, but also enduring the punishment for our sin. I want to make an argument for you this morning. I want you to follow logically. First, we are deserving the punishment of sin. Also, we will call it this, the wrath or judgment of God. In Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now I said God's judgment and God's wrath and some of you likely bristled. And you thought, I didn't come on Easter Sunday, a joyous day, to hear something so negative about God. I want to hear about how God is love, how God brings joy and peace. And he does. These things are all true. But to rightly understand the love of God, the peace of God, we must understand that the wrath of God is not a bad thing. It is actually a necessary result of his holiness. Follow this. Because God is holy which he is, that is the defining characteristic of God in scripture, that he is completely different than everything else in his creation, then there is no place for sin in his presence. And because there is no place for sin in his presence, he rightly enacts his justice against unrighteousness. Meaning, God is always right to judge sin. God is always righteous to pour out his wrath on sin. And the wrath of God is his judgment against sin. And it remains on those who have not trusted in Jesus. We get this from the words of Jesus himself in John 3, who says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you have not trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, know this, it is not that one day the wrath of God will be poured out on you. It is that right now the wrath of God remains on you. Present tense, you are currently under the wrath of God. But I have great news for you this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that God has not destined us for wrath, but to attain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel, my friend. That Jesus not only took your sin on the cross, but the wrath of God was poured out on him in his suffering. So that we can say, I am not destined to wrath. I am no longer remaining in the wrath of God, but I am free from it. I have been set free from this because Jesus paid the price for me. You can either remain under the wrath of God in this life, trusting in your own way, trusting that you have the ability to somehow please God on your own, which you do not, and then you will one day die and be eternally separated from God enduring his wrath for all eternity. Or, or you can look to Jesus who takes on your sin and takes on the wrath of God in your place, providing salvation through his death for you. Number three, Jesus was crucified to make permanent that which had previously only been temporary. An amazing thing happens if we take all of the gospel accounts together, because each gospel author tells us different things that happen on the resurrection, we affirm that they are all true. Some really incredible things happen during Jesus's time on the cross. The sky is darkened, Mark has told us that. There's incredible interactions that Jesus has with people. Matthew tells us of a great earthquake. He even tells us of graves giving up their dead during the time of the crucifixion. 
But there is one event that takes place during the crucifixion of Jesus, one physical event that takes place during the crucifixion of Jesus that I think is the most incredible. Mark tells us of this event in verse 38. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. There were two curtains that existed in what was known as Herod's temple, the temple in which the Israelites worshipped God in there in Jerusalem. One, temp- one curtain separated the court of the women from the court of the men. The other separated the court of Israel, the court of the men, from the Holy of Holies, the place in which only the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement could enter. None of the gospel authors tell us exactly which curtain it was that is torn, but it seems to be that we should argue for it being the curtain of the Holy of Holies, the one that separated the people from God. This curtain was likely 60 feet tall and 30 feet wide and an inch thick. The curtain didn't just separate the courts, the Holy of Holies and the court of Israel. It represented the separation of God and man. And the work of Jesus on the cross fundamentally changes that separation. The tearing of the curtain emphatically declares that access to God is now made permanent through Christ. That which only one man could enter on behalf of the people once a year was now torn in two saying, all can come. All are welcome, providing access to God. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, the best news of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty the Holy of Holies, the place in which Israel believed the presence of God rested, the curtain separating the people from their God, torn in two, providing permanent access through Jesus to God. Now nothing stands in the way. Somebody in the shrimp needs to hear this this morning because you think there is something separating you from God other than your sin. Listen, your sin separates you from God. But you may think there's some reason you can't take that step in faith towards Jesus, that, that there's too much that you've built up in your life to be able to do that, that there's that they're, they're, they're just a kind of a bridge too far for you. Hear me, Jesus has made a permanent way for all who come to faith in Christ. The author of Hebrews argues this for us over the course of several chapters, but I just want to show you two places. First, in Hebrews chapter 9, he writes, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The Father hundreds of years before, had 
put into place in Israel a temporary solution to the forgiveness of sin, one that looked forward to the permanent solution. And while those temporary sacrifices were just that, temporary, the blood of Jesus provided a permanent access, a permanent gateway, ripping the curtain in two, drawing back the curtain saying, come, come because our access to God has been made available through Jesus. In the next chapter of Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, we read, and every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet, for a single offering has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Hear this again, for a single offering he has perfected for all time. Jesus died in your place, taking on your sin and the punishment of God, and by doing so through the spilling of his righteous blood, has provided for you permanent access to God. Number four, Jesus really died Because death is the ultimate price for sin. Look at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You say, why does Mark include this in every section? Because it's important for Mark. It's important for us. People saw this. These women saw this. They have no reason to lie. They saw this happen. And when evening came, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, it was Friday, Sabbath was Saturday, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph brought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So again, eyewitness of the crucifixion, eyewitness of the burial. And here we have a respected member of the Israelite community. Joseph of Arimathea requests the body from Pilate, wraps him in a shroud, places him in a borrowed tomb just in time for the sun to set for the beginning of the Sabbath. Now, make no mistake. Let me just argue for fact for a moment. I told you I'm going to answer a bunch, I'm going to answer two why questions. Let me just answer one what question. Jesus actually died. That is crucial to this story. If Jesus didn't actually die, if Jesus is just kind of asleep, if he just fainted from the pain, if this was just him, you know, coming in and out because of the blood loss, then all of this is for nothing. And this is why we're told of the centurion's witness, of the women's witness, and of Joseph's witness. Jesus was dead. And his death matters. Because death is the ultimate price for sin. It is what we owe because we sin. This goes all the way back to the garden with Adam and Eve. When they sinned, God says, you will surely now die. 
Say, will I one day die? Yes, you will. Here's why. Because I can promise you this. I may not know you from anybody, but I know this is about you. You are a sinner. The Bible tells us this. In Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I trust the scriptures. You, my friend, are a sinner. You may not like to think yourself like that, but you are. And the most loving thing I can do this morning for you is to tell you this. You're a sinner. And Paul continues in Romans 6 to tell us that what happens because of our sin, for the wages of sin is death. That this is what we earn. This is what we deserve. This is the simple gospel truth that you are a sinner deserving of death and Jesus died in your place. Oh, but there is a second question for us to ask today and it is the reason that we have gathered today and by the way, it is the reason that we will gather for actually 53 Sundays this year because every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Why was the resurrection of Jesus necessary. The reformer Martin Luther says, the cross is the victory. The resurrection is the public display of the victory, the triumph of the crucified. So let me answer this question, why was the resurrection of Jesus necessary in only two parts? Number one, the father resurrected Jesus from the dead to validate the forgiveness of sins, one, through his death. The father resurrected Jesus from the dead to validate the forgiveness of sins, one, through his death. All that Jesus accomplished on the cross, taking on your sin, taking on the wrath of God and the punishment for your sin, ripping the curtain in two, providing access to God, and really, truly, literally, actually dying for you. Every moment of Jesus' crucifixion is validated on Sunday morning. Every single moment of that agony, the nail-pierced hands and feet, every lash of the whip, every poke of the crown of thorn is validated when God, the power of God raises Jesus from the dead. Listen to what Mark records for us in Mark 16. When the Sabbath was passed, this is now Sunday morning, it is early they were unable to prepare the body because of the Sabbath. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, these same women who watched, these same women who saw where he was buried, brought spices so that they may go and anoint him. They're gonna go prepare his body. And very early on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? The tomb had been blocked by a giant stone so that no one would take the body of Jesus. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Alarmed, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. These women are the first to the most, in, the most important fact in the history of mankind. The son of God who died in our place was resurrected by the power of God to validate his work on the cross for you. In Romans chapter four, Paul writes who, that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the proof of the ruling that our sins have been forgiven in the courtroom of the Lord. Go back to that definition of justification, that God does two things. He declares that we are innocent and he gives to us the righteousness of Christ. If I could provide this for you in writing, if I could give you a piece of paper today showing that evidence, you would consider that the most valuable piece of paper in all the world, that God, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, has declared all who come to him in faith as forgiven and righteous, that the work of Jesus on the cross is 100% enough. Nothing else needs to be done. There was nothing else for Jesus to accomplish, and there's nothing else that you can add to it. We are saved by grace through faith in the substitutionary death, that means the death in your place, of Jesus Christ alone. Number two, the Father father resurrected Jesus to vindicate the righteousness of Christ that is credited to those who believe in him. Look at verses seven. And eight, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. It's important to recognize what this messenger says to these women. Go and tell who the disciples, there would have been 11 disciples left, but he specifically names one of them, Peter. Now, In the previous verses, in chapter 14 and 15, we saw this progressive building of the disciples abandoning Jesus, unable to stay awake with him as he prayed to the Father in the garden, unwilling to be arrested with him as they all fled after Judas betrayed him. And even the denial of Jesus by the one singled out here in chapter 16, Peter, who three times in the courtyard of the high priest as Jesus was being tried inside, Peter is denying his relationship with him outside. And yet the messenger says, go and tell his disciples and Peter about what you've seen. Go and tell them. Why? Because it is not the actions of the disciple and Peter that matter. It is the righteousness of Jesus that is now given to the disciples and Peter that it is credited to them before God, just as it is credited to us. All who deserted and denied Christ are now given the righteousness of Jesus. Now again, let me make just a little bit of a theological argument for us. Righteousness is required for access to God. Now, I've told you there's nothing you can do to gain your way to God. There's there's nothing you can add to the forgiving work of Jesus that, that will make any difference because we can't add anything. But yet, it is a simple, true fact that righteousness is required for access to God. And not just a little bit of righteousness, by the way. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we just take that verse and think about that for a minute. Think about your righteousness. And then think about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. These were people who had dedicated their entire life to knowing God's word, to obeying every jot and tittle of the law. They knew it. They lived it. It wasn't true in their hearts, though. But on the outside, they were the most impressive religious people in Jesus' day. 
And Jesus looks at that righteousness and he says, okay, disciples, for you to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness is going to have to exceed that of these guys. When they heard this, they probably thought, there is absolutely no way. There's no way that I could do that. (laughs) But the work of Christ on Calvary and his resurrection from the dead changes the equation because now what is added to us is not our own works, which amount for nothing, but the works and righteousness of Jesus. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. When we come to faith in Jesus through repentance of our sin, not only, again, remember justification, not only does God declare us to be righteous, declare us to be forgiven, but he takes from Christ his righteousness and plants it within you, far exceeding the righteousness of the Pharisees. So this isn't a call to you to try harder. This is a call for you to trust in that which Jesus did and was validated and vindicated early on that Sunday morning when the power of God resurrected Jesus from the dead. So what? A simple question for you. Have I trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus unto salvation? That is the most important question anyone will ever ask you. There may be some young women in here that are hoping one day a man will ask them to marry them. There may be some college students in here that are hoping someday in their preferred career someone will invite them to come and to work for them. These are important questions that will be asked, but can I promise you there is no more important question than this one. Have you trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus unto salvation? Because there is salvation found in no other name, in no other place than Jesus alone. Now, there was one verse that we skipped in Mark 15. That's why I want us to consider it now. Jesus breathes his last. He says, it is finished, John tells us. He gives up his spirit to the Father and a pagan, a Roman centurion, looked at Jesus, saw what he said, saw what he did, and said this simple truth. Truly, this man was the Son of God. As you have heard not only what happened on the cross of Christ and the Sunday morning of his resurrection, I don't only ask you, do you believe this is true? I ask you, do you have the same reaction as this centurion? Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God sent in your place to take on your sin, to take on God's wrath, to die in your place, to be validated and vindicated in his resurrection so that you might be saved? If so, If you hear that today and you say, I want to believe this today, here is the simple truth of what you do. Paul says in Romans 10, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This isn't simply about knowing historical information. That's a part of it. But it's about saying, I'm going to make this historical information the defining moment in my life that I'm going to believe that Jesus did this, not just in a general sense, but he did it for me. 
I'm going to believe that it was actually my sin that crucified Jesus, that it was actually God's wrath towards me that was diverted towards Jesus, that it was actually my death that he died in my place, that I can walk through that torn open curtain and access God. And I can know this because Jesus lives today. And you, my friend, can have this kind of faith in Jesus if you will but confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believing not in your mind but in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You, too, can be declared forgiven and righteous. This is why Jesus died, and this is why God raised him from the dead, so that we could be saved. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus, the good news that is Christ in my place, holy and completely, that I bring nothing to the table. There is no righteousness within me. There is no goodness within me. There is nothing about my pedigree. There is nothing about my history. There is nothing that I have that makes me worthy of what Jesus did, but he did it anyway because you, our great God, loved us enough to send your son to die in our place. May this truth penetrate hard hearts right now. May you call men and women and boys and girls to salvation found in Jesus alone, not in their own works, not in their own creation of who God is or who Jesus is, but in Christ alone, crucified, buried, and resurrected for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here in a moment, we're going to stand and sing. That You may have never been in a church service before. You thought it was a little odd that we spent the first 20 or 25 minutes or so singing. We're about to do it some more. Listen to the words that we're singing. You don't have to sing with us. We are invited to. But just listen to the words that we're singing. We're singing the truth of what we've already heard from his word. But as we're singing, I'm going to be sitting on this front pew right here. I'd love for you to just come talk to me. If you hear this today and say, I want to believe that, then come and talk to me. We'll also have one or two of our pastors out at the Connect desk. This is the desk out on the left in the lobby after the service. I'll be out there. Love to talk to you there. Don't hear this information as good news, but walk away without doing something about it. Come and talk to us about how you can follow Jesus, how you can be a part of this local expression of his family as we celebrate the resurrection every Sunday right here in this place. Church family, the redeemed, what we do now, having heard the gospel, is we now sing the gospel and celebrate the gospel and worship the God of the gospel. Would you stand with us?